Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Um, If you're new or you've been away for a couple of weeks, over the last three weeks, I've been doing a series um, that that we've just called Revive All, and we've been looking at a couple of the seasons where God has moved by the power of his Holy Spirit, and in hindsight, we look back and say they were really uh, revival seasons. In lots of ways, it's a follow-up to a series I did in um, 2009 when I I did a series called uh, The Century of the Spirit, and we look back at revival movements over the 20th century. Um, It's uh, more of a historical study than we're used to doing. Normally, we are in the scriptures. Um, These last two weeks and today is is really more history than anything else. Um, It's not intended to be history for history's sake, and it's not about nostalgia, although it may have that effect uh, on some of you who are around my age, because we are looking at more recent outpourings of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of the series is to kind of um, cause our hearts to anticipate, to posture our hearts to believe God that he might do it again in our day, and in our time, and, and we've taken that passage from the, the minor prophet Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 2, as our prayer, where Habakkuk said, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known. It's a repeat of the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 85, verse 6, where he says, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? So we're talking about revival seasons with the purpose that our hearts would be opened up to a prayer of Lord again in our day, in our time. So over the last couple of weeks, I've looked at recent outpourings. I talked in the first week about the Jesus movement of the 1960s and 70s, and we focused on an individual. Um, We talked a little bit about Lonnie Frisbee and the role that he played in that remarkable move of the Holy Spirit. Last week, I talked about the charismatic movement that kind of flowed parallel with the Jesus movement, interacting and like, um, you know, one of the pictures we've put up on the slide is the the riverbed of the Rakaia River with all its different streams and little tributaries. And as you look back in hindsight, the move of God was very much like that. The charismatic movement, which was also the 60s, running through the 1980s, touching the historic denominations from Lutherans to Presbyterians to even Roman Catholics. And I say that as a Roman Catholic at that time, who was profoundly touched by that movement. Um, We looked at uh, the role that Dennis Bennett, the Episcopal priest, played in that season. 
I want to conclude this short series by looking at what has been dubbed the third wave of the Holy Spirit in the 20th, 21st century. The third wave is a phrase coined by Dr. Peter Wagner of Fuller Theological Seminary, and Wagner in that is acknowledging the earlier waves of the Holy Spirit in the 20th century. The first wave, he talks about the classic Pentecostals, the Welsh Revival, the Azusa Revival in Los Angeles, which really birthed a number of historic denominations, the Assemblies of God, uh, the Foursquare Church in the United States, from, from Britain, the Apostolic and the Elam denominations, so the classic Pentecostal movements. The second wave, he talked about the Jesus people and the charismatic movement of the 1960s and the 1980s. And he coined the third wave to refer to the growing number of conservative evangelical churches that were embracing, embracing the full range of spirit empowerment and spiritual gifts. And these churches wouldn't identify themselves as either classic Pentecostals or charismatics, but preferred to be called empowered evangelicals. I find that metaphor or terminology of the wave quite, quite helpful. I recognize it's, simplist, it's simplistic in some respects because all of the three waves are really ongoing movements of the Holy Spirit through the 20th century. And some have suggested that the empowered evangelicals are just a new current within the continuing flow of the Holy Spirit through that century. I like the wave analogy because it reminds me of Psalm 77 and verse 19 where it says, your way is in the sea and your path is in the great waters. When you consider the sea, one characteristic of it is its ebb and flow, its waves, its tides, its come and go. And that's very much how revival looks as you look at it in hindsight. The ebb, the flow, the tide, the high tide, the, the lower tide, that's really what has happened over this 20th century. So in this message, what I want to do is look at the third wave in a little more detail. In the first two lessons I did, I picked out an individual to focus on and to try and learn from, not because they were the only person that God used in that season. Lonnie Frisbee was by far and away not the only person that God used in the Jesus movement, and we could have picked out a number of other people that were as uh, high profile as he was, but we, we chose him and followed that little rivulet. Dennis Bennett in the charismatic movement was only one of thousands of pastors and ministers that God used, but both those two were visible, and it's why I highlighted them. In this third wave, I plan to do the same and to focus on one particular individual that God used. He is one of many, or he was one of many, but one very much learn, uh, worth learning from. And I want to look at the man by the name of John Wimber. Now, before we do this, I want to acknowledge a personal debt that I have to this man and to the vineyard movement that largely sprang from his ministry. I first encountered John Wimber in the early 1980s when a friend of mine sent me a cassette tape series. Now for those of you who don't know what cassette tapes are, ask your elderly grandfather when you get home, okay? But uh, somebody sent me a cassette tape series on his teaching and I found it so fresh, so honest, so vulnerable, so doable, and so well-balanced, and I was really drawn to the man. Uh, we attended his first Signs and Wonders conference in 1986 in Auckland, and I went to subsequent conferences as he returned to New Zealand. In 1991, Karen and I, and Janae actually, uh, went and spent a month in Lancaster Vineyard uh, at a pastor's school. 
And we were profoundly shaped by that experience. And so, you know, I want to acknowledge a debt. Um, it was interesting because my association with the vineyard at that time caused some angst in the Assemblies of God uh, denomination that I was part of. And uh, one leading pastor came to me and said, why do you bother going to them, Don? They've got nothing to teach us. We've been doing this stuff for years. And the hubris of that statement bothered me, you know, because I, I found such freshness in, in Wimber's ministry. Uh, another pastor who was actually uh, part of the executive um, called me and, and said, uh, you're planning to take this church, the Assemblies of God Church, out of the movement and go vineyard. And I said, no, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. I said, no, I'm not. One of the things that I so appreciate about the Assemblies of God is that they give you the freedom to follow what you feel the Holy Spirit is doing without the pressure to, have it, to having to leave. And I'm not planning to take the church out of the movement and go vineyard. He said, I don't believe you. I said, I don't know what to do with that. Of course, you're thinking, well, we did leave the movement. And, <laughs> and yes, we did, but not to go vineyard. That was another story entirely. I guess in the in this talk, the danger is that I sound like I'm some kind of Wimber groupie, and I'm not. I, I value the man's ministry, I stand as a beneficiary of it, but I've been around long enough to know that all men and women of God have clay feet, and Wimber did too. And I think one of the things I loved about him actually was that he, he acknowledged he had clay feet, and he was so self-effacing. I recall some people suggesting to him that he was a modern-day apostle, and he laughed and said, listen, I'm a fat man trying to get to heaven. That was his response. Um, you know, the, interesting, but the only two men that I probably would say, they are modern-day apostles. One was John Wimber and the other was Jack Hayford, and both of them refused that title. When people offered it to them, they just said, no way. Wimber just said, I'm a fat man trying to get to heaven. Jack Hayford said, you know, no, I acknowledge I'm a father in the faith, but just let's leave it at that, shall we? And I appreciate the humility of it all. Wimber was born in 1934 in Missouri. Uh, his, fa his father abandoned him and his mother on the day that he was born. And so he grew up, like Lonnie Frisbee, in a single-parent home as an only child. And he says, I had absolutely no religious influence in my life or my upbringing, and said that he came from America's pagan pool with no connection with church or with religion for, at, at, at very least, four generations as far back as he could uh, trace it. In fact, he said, I don't even recall meeting a Christian. And he said, if I did, he didn't blow his cover. <laughs> to him, Jesus was just a cuss word. Now, growing up without siblings meant that he spent long periods alone, and he was drawn to music, and he became very good at it. He learned to play over 20 instruments. Uh, his favorite was the saxophone, and by 15, he was a very, very accomplished musician, and a professional career awaited. In 1962, he became a forming member of a group that some of you will remember as the Righteous Brothers. They weren't righteous any way, shape, or form. I'm not quite sure why they called themselves the Righteous Brothers. But you might remember the song, I've lost that love and feeling. Woo-hoo. <laughs> that love and feeling. I, I often use that song in weddings, by the way. N not because I think it's good theology. It's really bad theology. But it was a good song. 
And in the early 1960s, uh, the Righteous Brothers had two albums in the top 10. When the Beatles came to tour America, I think it was in 1964, their opening act was the Righteous Brothers. So that gives you some indication of the prominence that they had. Now, while John's musical career was soaring, his marriage, he'd married Carol in 1955, was absolutely disintegrating. They separated for five months and he went off to Las Vegas to play uh, with his band. Carol messaged him uh, that she was planning to divorce him. And John, while he knew the marriage was in a mess, was absolutely distraught. He said on the advice of one of his drinking buddies, he went out into the desert to watch a sunrise, hoping that there'd be some moment of transcendence, that he might get some help to help change Carol's mind. And he said, I cried and wept. And for the first time, he said, I lifted my head and said, if there's anybody out there, will you help me? Shades of Pink Floyd. Is there anybody out there? <laughs> Feeling embarrassed and with tears and at a state and thinking that he might be losing his mind, he went back to the hotel. And in arriving in the lobby, the, um, one of the porters said, hey, you got a message. Uh, I think it's from your wife. And he was really surprised because she hadn't been talking to him for a long time. But he went and got the message and in the message, Carol informed him that she wanted to try one more time to rescue the marriage. Now he knew that uh, that sudden change of mind had something to do with his cry. So he drove, got Carol, brought her back to Las Vegas, and they began to try and re-establish uh, the marriage. They talked a lot about God and religion and the Bible, because John now thought he had connection with the supernatural. He'd cried out something had happened. Um, Carol had a nominal Christian background, so she knew a lot about uh, a lot more about God than, than John didn't. She told him about the Bible, and John was shocked to learn that God had a book out. <laughs> he said, when did he do that? You know? And he started to read it and says, it's all about Jewish people. And, and Carol, he's, he, God is Jewish. He said, I didn't know that. You know? And, and so hilariously, they stumble their, their way to, to, towards God. John tells this funny story about how he got his first Bible. Um, he, he went to the casino shop during acts, you know, during the acts of you know, the music, and asked if they had a Bible. And, and he said, surprisingly, they, they didn't have a Bible. Uh, and they pointed him down the road across to a convenience store, and he went down there and he asked the owner if he had a Bible. And he said, I think there's one on the rack over there. And he, he went over and found it, and he said, it didn't really look like what he imagined a Bible would look like. He said it was paperback and green in color. And he said, is this, a, is this a Bible? And the guy says, well, it's half a Bible. It's half a Bible. He says, is it half price? <laughs> anyway, he, he took this half a Bible and he began to read it in the bar between acts. And the bartender came up to him one evening and said, what are you reading? He said, I'm reading the Bible. He said, you can't read that here. He said, he said why? The light's good. I can see the words. No, no, no. You, you can't read it here. Anyway, that's not a real Bible. He said, I knew it. I knew, I knew that it wasn't a real Bible. I said, well, what's a real Bible look like? I said, well, it's black, and it's leather, and it's got red words, and it says, holy Bible. John said, I've been ripped off. You know? So he said, the bartender scribbled something down on a piece of paper, gave it to him, and said, go down to the Bible shop down the road there and ask for this. So down the road he went. He finished work that night at 4 a.m., which is you know, when the good acts were on, late, late, late. So he finished at 4 a.m., he drove down to the Bible shop and he was surprised that it was closed. 
He said, don't they know this is the time the sinners are out? And he waited till 8.30 when the owner came, followed him in and gave him the piece of paper. And the bartender laughed because on the piece of paper it, had, it said, give this man a King James Virgin. <laughs> they didn't have them, but they had a King James Version. So John bought it, took it home, and they stumbled and fumbled their way to God, reading, talking, arguing. And at that time, two friends, old friends, reappeared in their lives, Dick and Lynn Haling. Dick had been a drummer in one of John's bands. And they announced that they'd become Christians, and they wanted John and Carol to come to their church. Now, I can't tell you the way this rolls, a pagan in church for the very first time, so I've got it on video for you. It's a 10-minute clip, so it's longer than we normally play, but it gives you a feel for this man. Um, the testimony is worth hearing in full, and you can get it on YouTube. Um, John and uh, Carol came to Christ shortly after that uh, <laughs> occurrence in a small group setting and what John found is he had an incredible gift of evangelism and he literally led hundreds of people to Jesus over that next season. By 1970 he was leading 11 Bible studies with over 500 people in attendance. He joined that church, uh, it was a Quaker church, a friend's church, and um, he was taken on staff shortly afterwards, and it, it very rapidly became the largest church, Quaker church, in the denomination in the United States, growing to over 800 people. So John is now on staff, and he spends the next 13 years in that institution, but over time he realises he's lost something, outwardly splendid as of old, inwardly sparkless, void and cold. And one day after scolding a young man for his inconsistent church attendance, he said he was walking down back to his office and he heard the Lord speak to him and he said, John, would you attend this church if you weren't being paid to? And he said, I instantly knew two things. Number one, the answer was no. And number two, I had to leave. I had to leave the pastorate. Not the church, but the pastorate. Now providentially, a man by the name of Peter Wagner, the one who coined the phrase, the third wave, who was a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, invited John to join its staff. He obviously had seen phenomenal church growth and he was invited to join Fuller in the Institute of Evangelism and Church Growth. And uh, Wimber's family remained in the Friends Church, but John travelled the United States for the next four years, speaking to over 40,000 pastors on the subject of growing churches. After that four years, again, Wimber found himself in a place of being professionally successful and spiritually bereft. And one day, alone in a hotel room, he cried out to God for help. And again, he heard the Lord speaking to him, saying, John, I've seen your ministry. And he, as he tells it, he says, and it was kind of like, mm, yeah. he said, now I'm going to show you mine. Now, God spoke to him clearly about going back to his place in your Belinda and starting a church. And he says, he spoke to me 19 different ways, 19 different times. He said, most of them I didn't believe. I didn't believe God spoke like that. But remarkably, he had this confirmation to go back and start the church. Meanwhile, Carol had been on her own spiritual quest. She started meeting with a group of people from the church, crying out for greater intimacy with God. John comes back, joins that group, and very quickly becomes its leader, and very quickly it grows to over 100 people. The, 
elders at the Quaker church started hearing strange stories, stories of people speaking in tongues, of excessive emotion. And so they came to John and Carol and said, you've got to leave. And the upshot was that they left, not wanting to be independent, they joined themselves to a Calvary Chapel church, Chuck Smith, Lonnie Frisbee, those rivulets coming together. And in that next season, they discovered an intimacy with God in worship. And John was teaching through the Gospel of Luke, and he said in almost every chapter, there was healings. And he didn't know what to do with that because he hadn't really um, faced this whole area of physical hearing, uh, healing. But he felt challenged by God to start to teach on it. And very shortly after that, he said, I had to do more than teach on it. I had to start praying for the sick. And he said, so for a whole year, they prayed for the sick in every service without one recognizable healing. And people started to get annoyed over what they saw and believed was fanaticism. John was incredibly discouraged um, and ultimately said, I'm not going to do this stuff anymore. And he said, God spoke to me. And he said, either preach my word or get out. And it's funny to hear that story. John goes, out? I mean, like, what do you mean, out? How far out? Out of the ministry? Out of the church? Out of the kingdom? Out? What do you mean? And the Lord just said to him, preach my word, not your experience. So he continued to speak on healing. He said, one night... They were praying and, and they went up behind the curtain in the auditorium that they were in, the school hall that they were in. They prayed for the sick, prayed, prayed, nothing. He said he fell on the ground just weeping with frustration. And he said all the people that were praying, when he finally stopped, looked around, they were all on the floor praying uh, and crying. Lord, Lord, why no healing? He said one of the guys got so angry, he stormed out from behind the curtain and said, I'm not going behind that damn curtain again. I've had it. He went home, apparently so frustrated, opened his Bible, and I don't recommend this, put his finger on a verse and said, what does it say? And he says, the Lord dwelleth behind the curtain. <laughs> Dust and ashes, repentance. Shortly after that, healing started. And they started to see some remarkable healings. Then came the famous Mother's Day sermon with Lonnie Frisbee that I talked about on the, in the first message. And as a result of what transpired, the supernatural impact of the Holy Spirit on that congregation, um, they were blasted into the stratosphere of international um, attention. They baptized over 700 people in five months. What was happening in the church brought them into some conflict with the Calvary Chapel uh, authorities because John Wimber was promoting in the front room what Calvary Chapel had relegated to the back room. They, they weren't keen on the manifestations. Uh, Chuck Smith's focus was on in-depth exposition of Scripture, and he saw the signs and wonders and manifestations of the Holy Spirit as a distraction. So ultimately, Wimber separated from Calvary Chapel with Chuck Smith's blessing, joined a small group of churches called the Vineyard, and he was very quickly asked to lead that group of people, and the rest, they say, is history. In 2020, the Vineyard had planted 2,400 churches in 95 different countries. One event, however, blasted Wimber into international fame. Wim, uh, Peter Wagner at Fuller asked Wimber to teach a course at Fuller Seminary, and it came to be known as Signs and Wonders Church Growth MC510. Fuller, you have to understand, wasn't Pentecostal or charismatic. It was an evangelical, multi-denominational uh, organization, but the course was a sensation. 
It was taught five times to overflowing standing room only classes, three hours over 10 consecutive Monday evenings. And Wimber would teach on healing, the kingdom of God, worldview, and then he would always have what he called clinics, hands on, um, let's, let's do what we've been talking about. And the miraculous regularly followed. People were healed, set free, filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, in church history, there's probably only two seminary courses that have become internationally famous. The first was a course on dogmatics taught in Basel, Switzerland by Karl Barth just after the war. The second is MC510 taught by John Wimber at Fuller Theological Seminary. It brought a national spotlight on John Wimber and Fuller for good and ill praise and criticism. After four years, the course was discontinued because the opposition and the criticism that it brought to Fuller. Peter Wagner believed that Fuller's professors were professionally jealous of the success of MC510 and pressed for it to be discontinued. What happened, however, is they took the essence of that course and it became the springboard for launching Wimber into the international stage. And he took um, that course uh, in international conference, uh, into conference form internationally. It was what we saw in Auckland in 1986. And remarkably, um, I mean, I... I could tell you about it, it would take too long, but the Spirit of God came in dramatic and powerful ways. I'm, you know, understand I'm from a classic Pentecostal background, but I hadn't seen what I saw in that particular conference. So Wimber and his team had a massive effect on nations all around the globe, particularly probably South Africa and the UK. In the UK, it was the Anglican Church that really opened their heart and hands to Wimber. They welcomed him and the Anglican Church was transformed in the UK. People like um, uh, David Watson, David Pitches, Sandy Miller, who was the vicar of Holy Trinity Brompton. He was followed, by the way, uh, in that role by a man that I'm sure you've heard of, Nicky Gumbel. Nicky Gumbel and Sandy Miller were responsible for the Alpha Course, which has gone worldwide and impacted over 30 million people. Actually, Nicky Gumbel went to a John Wimber meeting. Uh, he's a lawyer, a Jew Jewish stock, a lawyer, and he's not quite sure what's going on here, but the Spirit of the Lord came on him. He fell flat on the ground, and ultimately they were carrying him out. And as they were carrying him out, Wimber said, by the way, that young man that's been carried out will reach millions for the kingdom. And he was the one who developed uh, Alpha and, and took it worldwide. Influenced by Wimber, Holy Trinity Brompton uh, and its staff were then massively affected by another vineyard church and another breakout of revival. In 1994, a vineyard church in Toronto, Canada, pastored by John and Carol Arnott, experienced a strong visitation of God's Spirit when another vineyard pastor by the name of Randy Clark came and took a series of meetings. That series of meetings then became continuous, and in their first year, over 600,000 people visited uh, the vineyard in Toronto, including Chris, and, and Karen went as well. Um, Wimber initially endorsed what was happening in Toronto, uh, but he had some reservations about some of the unusual manifestations uh, that were transpiring, and more especially how they were particularly being stewarded and encouraged by Toronto's leaders. Um, he shared those reservations with the Toronto leaders. They didn't really respond to it, and in 1996, Wimber withdrew as an endorsement of those meetings and uh, Toronto went independent. Uh, much debate over whether he was right, who knows, perhaps except God. 
One, just to see those streams, how they flow and interact, one young evangelist by the name of Steve Hill visited Holy Trinity Brompton in England and was prayed for by Sandy Miller. Got a real touch and he went down to an Assemblies of God church in Brownsville, Pensacola, preached on Father's Day and revival broke out. And the meetings continued for over two years and over four million people visited Pensacola during that time with over 200,000 decisions for Christ. Many of you will know the name Bill Johnson. You will have read some of his material. He, intend, he, he visited a Signs and Wonders course in 1987, was greatly exercised by what he saw. Like me, come from a classic Pentecostal background, but he hadn't seen what he saw under Wimber's ministry and longed for that touch. He also went to Toronto, got touched significantly, moved back to his church. Very shortly afterwards, went to Redding, California, where Bethel Church exploded with over 11,000 people attending. Sparks, cinders, like, like, like a bushfire where a cinder flicks over there and suddenly there's another out, outbreak. That's what the Spirit of God has done through the 20 and 21st century. John Wimber sadly passed away in 1997, aged 63, from a massive brain hemorrhage after a fall. He really struggled with his health, which is sort of so ironic, given the healing ministry that God in, uh, poured out through his life. So the stream flows on. Now, some of you are saying, Don, are you endorsing all that you've spoken about, all that happened at Toronto, all that happened maybe in Wimbers? And, and I'm not endorsing anything necessarily. I, I recognize that all, re, all revival movements, as I've said through this series, have good, bad, and ugly. But be careful when you see the ugly not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I know from my own experience during the 1994 um, awakening and refreshing that happened here at Gateway as a result of people being in Toronto and coming back, cinders, I mean, we saw good, bad and ugly. We saw some people dramatically, powerfully touched by the Holy Spirit. I saw other things that I really struggled with pastorally. The question, I guess, is how do you respond to God's invitation? How do you respond to what God is doing? Wimber had a vision, and I'll finish with this, but he had a vision one time of, he was driving along um, the LA freeways and he said, I had to pull over to the side because he said, I suddenly saw superimposed over the sky what was a honeycomb. And he said, the honey was just dripping down. And the Lord spoke to him and said, John, this is my mercy. And he said, at the bottom were people. And he said, some people were just letting the honey roll over them. Other people were collecting it in their hands. And, and he said, other people were going, yeah, yeah, what, what is the sticky stuff? And that's how people respond to when the Spirit is poured out, you know. Some people are, oh, yes, Lord, whatever. Other people are going, not sure. Other people are, I didn't sign up for this. This is, this is not what I not what I signed up, I don't feel comfortable with this, and brush away the objectionable stuff. The choice, it seems, is so very often up to us. One of the things that strikes me as I study revival, and I ha have over the years read a great deal about it, is that it's, it's that verse in Psalm 42, I think it's verse 6, where it says, deep cries out unto deep. How deep's the cry? Shallow cry? What can God fill but shallow? When there is a depth, a desperation, a cry, deep cries to deep, and there's a deep vessel that God can fill. He comes where he's wanted, it seems to me.
If you ask Chris about the Welsh revival, he'll tell you the remarkable thing about it is that it jumped some villages and went to others. Some were completely untouched. It didn't engulf the whole nation. There was villages that, that were untouched, and he said invariably they were ones that said, we don't want this. This is fanaticism, it's emotionalism, and we don't want it, and God didn't come. You know, it makes me think of my cousin who came to my wedding and Karen and I had not long been believers. We were very enthusiastic and, and passionate and I made no bones about the fact that when I made my speeches that, you know, we were going to follow Jesus from, this on, from here on in and I was so honoured that he had attended our wedding in the way that he had attended the one at Canaan and Galilee. And I remember my cousin saying, I don't want him to come to mine. And I said, don't worry, he won't. He comes where he's wanted. How much do you want him? Let me finish. Musicians, would you come with this verse from Amos chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. He said, I'll make it rain on one village, but not on another. i make it rain on one field, but not on another. And that one would dry up. People would stagger from village to village, crazed for water and never quenching their thirst. But you never got thirsty for me. You ignored me. Comes on one piece of ground, but not another comes on one village and not another, comes on one person and not another. I think there's something in terms of our cry. Lord, please don't pass me by. I, I often in my quiet times sing that old hymn. Don't, please don't pass me by, gentle Saviour, while on others thou art calling. Please don't pass us by. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.